Our call to worship this morning is found in the back of your hymnals. Responsive reading number 768, Mission of the Church. I invite you to turn with me as I read the light print, and Paul will, read, will lead you in reading the dark print. Responsive reading 768. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, and lo, I am, I am with you always, even, even to, to the, the end, end of the age. age. Amen. Amen. Our test, Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 8. It's on your pew Bible. It's on page 502. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. New Testament reading. Revelations 3, 14 through 21. That would be in your pew Bible 1139 and 40. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover up your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as, just as I was victorious, and I sat down with my father on his throne. Amen. Today's gospel reading is Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9, and verses 18 through 23. It can be found in the Pew Bible on pages 901 and 902. Desiree will read verses 3 through 9, and I will read verses 18 through 23. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went down to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and the withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on the good soil, where it was produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was shown. Who has ears, let them hear. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it un unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred 60 or 30 times what was sown. The texts today are all over the place, aren't they? And that's probably because it would take about 10 sermons to tell our story. I may take two, maybe three. But I kind of want to highlight the paradoxes share with you a bit of where we're going with this. You see, this church is a remarkable place where an eclectic group of people had gathered because of a variety of reasons. Some of you have come because you believe and this is now the town you live in and this is the most convenient place for you to gather. Some of you gather here because you have for 10, 20, 30 years. Some of you have found avenues of service here and love what you do for God in this place. Some of you are here because you like the preaching, go figure. Some of you are here because you have been blessed by the music program or the children's ministries program or you just want a good meal at Potluck and this church does a pretty good job with Potluck. Maybe you like the friendliness, the warmth, 
Who knows? I don't know why God has pulled you to this place exactly. That's part of your story. But when we have thought collectively as as a group of leaders in this church about our direction this year, we've thought very carefully about the investments we've made. Put a lot into this facility. For those of you who are newer, you wouldn't know that just seven or eight years ago we were meeting over in the NPR room so that we could renovate this space. It used to have pretty green carpet and pretty green pews. 1960 circa. Some of you remember the day. We've spent a great deal of time, energy, and evangelistic monies hiring a children's ministries director. We're on our second had a wonderful program that's expanded what we are able to offer our children. We've been very successful at baptizing our children. And I want to continue that tradition and extend to all of you with kids the invitation, my willingness to study with your children, to have a class for them, and to make sure that they learn what they need to learn, that they have an opportunity to make that commitment to Christ at an age when it is most likely to happen and most likely to count. We've been through cycles of growth and loss. We've we've been through a lot of different things. We've invested ourselves a great deal of time and energy in this place. Now is a good time to stop and say, what next? Now is a good time for all of us to kind of reflect on what it is that brings us to this place. what makes us what we are? Why have we chosen this? What, God, what might God have for us next out of all of that? might be a time to focus on some individual and corporate study, prayer, reflection about what we believe at our core. And so in an effort to encourage this and participate in this pastorally, I am teaching on these things, starting last two weeks with the story of God. Now, there, in all fairness, I could not tell the story of God in a lifetime. And frankly, I don't know the whole story of God. I have little bits and pieces and a few passages of Revelation. That's about what I've got to work with, my own intuition and experience, same as all of you. But I've tried to give you an overview of God as creator, and God as Redeemer, God is the one who was with us in the beginning, God is the one who's with us in Jesus Christ, God is the one who will come again. So we've had a brief Trinitarian introduction to the personhood of God, reminding ourselves that His story, God's story, is our story too, because as Creator, we don't have a story without Him. As Redeemer, We don't have a consciousness of the grace that has come to us without him either. And so that's the backdrop. The backdrop to where, and if you don't make it every week, it's okay. These are online or you can miss a week and you're still going to get the idea. We're going to talk about our story as it's embedded in God's story just a little bit. And then we're going to talk about our denominational story. We're going to talk a little bit about your stories. And I hope that some of you will be thinking of ways in which you might be willing to share with the congregation the ways in which God has been moving and acting in your life in the last bit of time. So even when we can't see his hand, he's there.
even when we're not really sure of what's happening in our own lives, God is present, available to you, seeking, wanting. So that's kind of where we're going with all of this. I just saw Kathy Farrar, and she's part of our children's ministries, and she's also a groundhog. And I just have to say happy birthday tomorrow to a fellow groundhog. With Any other groundhoggers out there? My wife is. She's not here today, but uh, anyway. Take time to watch Groundhog's Day. It's a very theological movie profound implications for your spirituality. I'm serious. You think I'm kidding. You know the plot? Guy wakes up same time, same day, repeats it over and over and over again until he finally gets it right. It's very funny. He makes a million mistakes. He even gets so depressed that it's the same day he kills himself a million different ways. But all, in all of that, there's the story of life as we live it, isn't there? What would it look like to live a perfect day? And how might God be a part of that story? So rent it, Netflix it, watch it on whatever you, Hulu, whatever you do, and enjoy Groundhog's Day tomorrow. That's my commercial. I'm done. My name is Greg, and I'm a pastor. Thank you for wearing your name tags again, by the way. That's just great. We will wear them again March 1. For those of you who are saying, really, I have to do this again? So there it is. If you take a survey of all the different things that we could touch on, like I said, it would be 20 sermons, not one or two. So oftentimes in Christendom, human beings are first framed by the question of sin. And I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. Who you are doesn't start with sin. It starts with something else. You see, it starts with creation. God made you, formed you, breathed into you life, and gave you attributes that are very similar to his own. There's a passage that says, For he made us just a little lower than the angels. What I found out this week I didn't know before. That that is translated the angels by tradition. That the actual Hebrew word there is, He made us just a little bit lower than Elohim. Do you know who Elohim is? God. God made us in his image after his likeness, and that is a huge part of the human story. We live in a deconstructionalist age. We live in an age in which there's no faith. I'm going to talk fast here. Track with me if you can. We live in an age in which people are denying the existence of God, and worse, they're reducing everything to some sort of physical reality denying the spirituality of what we're about. You can do anything you want because morality is arbitrary and just a construction. It's just something we made up. It's the product of religion, and religion is the product of people who just want to control you. The opiate of the masses. This is the world in which we live. 
You are not a unique creation according to the world in which we live. You are simply a sentient being who has freedoms yet to unlock for yourself because you haven't yet understood all the ways in which religion and society have constrained you and ruined your chances at freedom and happiness. So live away. We are, in essence, animals, are we not? We're just a few steps genetically away from the gorilla. We are part of a continuum of plant and animal life here, and really, we are the sum of our urges, desires, and needs. Welcome to contemporary thought on humankind. Sadly, I can say sadly, some of you are living that story or have lived that story. And you know better than anyone the consequences of a life without conviction, a life that does not separate human life from the rest of human life. You see, of no other creature can God say he was created or she was created a little lower than Elohim. That's only you. Only you. Of no other creature does God give the capacity to speak and have that spoken word be generative, create something, make something. You have that capacity. Of no other creature does God say, I want you to thrive, and the way that you are going to thrive is by imbuing everything that would be natural to you with meaning, overlaying it with culture. Let me give you a quick example. We don't just eat. Heaven help us if any of you just eat. We'll all be shocked at you at potluck time because you won't wait for anybody you won't be concerned about the protocol. You're just going to go throw your face or your hands right into the dishes on the table and start eating. That's what a dog would do. That's what an animal would do. An animal who is hungry will simply eat. If you were just an animal who was simply hungry, you would march over there and throw your face into the mashed potatoes and eat. And you might growl, claw at, scratch, kick, or hit anybody who came close to you. Ever watched your dogs eat out of the same dish? There's a pecking order. The biggest and the baddest among us will be the first to eat. Who is that in this room? You can decide. By the way, the runt of you will not be eating today. We will have consumed all the food, and you will not be eating today. Nor will the children. They are last. Got it? So this is the story of humankind. When we eat, for example, and this is not, philosophers have worked on this, when we eat, we ritualize it. We imbue it with meaning. We take raw foods and we prepare them. We have ritual. Where a family sits around a table has meaning. There is a chair usually where the head of house sits or at least where the parents always sit. There are chairs where the children always sit. There is a table set. You do not eat with your fingers, unless it's certain foods. You eat with a fork and a knife. Some parents are pickier than others about which hand which goes in and how that's to be cut and what's that to be done. Do you chew with your mouth open or closed? 
Every culture has its own rules. And you will notice if we look not too far back, many cultures judge other cultures by, to be barbarian just by the way they choose to eat, even though they have their own rules of eating. My friends in Ethiopia, love them dearly, eat with injara. They eat with their fingers. It is the most lovely way to eat. And they feed one another, very intimate, very warm, very connected, very civilized. And yet an ignorant person might judge them savages because they don't use a fork. They might judge us savages for using a fork. You see how it goes? My point isn't sociology. My point is that we don't just eat. We ritualize it. We embed it with meaning. When we talk about what it means to be an American, we say what? Motherhood, baseball, and... Thank you, Bunny, a little louder. Apple pie. Food is part of what it means to be a culture, to be a people. What our food is, how we eat it, how we present it gives us great distinction and great joy. Hospitality is huge. And if you have Quicken or QuickBooks or something at your home, go home and see how much you spend on food every year or eating out. It's amazing. That's how important it is. But we don't just eat. We don't just have sex. We don't rut like animals. There's meaning. We don't just do a lot of things because we have been created in the image of God, atheist and believer alike. Muslim, Jew, Hindu, Jainist, Buddhist, Confucianist, Taoist, animist, created in the image of God alike. Loved by God. That's your story. So a big part of the human story is embedded in creation and God's creativity and the image in whom, the, the person whose image we've been created in. Now sin has taken a toll on that. Sin has separated us from God and from one another. It's caused us to violate the environment in every way imaginable. Greed and the need for power have driven us to exploitations that are unimaginable. We've wiped out now tens of thousands of species of insect and animal in our quest to grow. And yet, the very notion of building a city is embedded in the same kind of meaning that creation is embedded in. Because when we think about what is to come for us, heaven to be, what is it? It's the holy city. It's the new Jerusalem. It's come to be on earth, our dwelling place. And we share the city of God. So the desire to live in community the desire to create cities where we have the opportunity to flourish and prosper, to have access to the goods and services that we need, to be citizens, to participate. This is all embedded in the natural order of the way God has created us to be.
It's not sin per se, but sin has caused us to distort that and to abuse that and to trash the environment in the process of trying to create those spaces. So sin isn't the whole story either, but it's a significant part of it, isn't it? I wonder for just a minute if you look at the parable that was read today, if you can identify and see yourself in the story. What's your story? We're in there, you see. You're either the hard ground that's unreceptive. You're either the rocky soil and something springs up quickly in you and dies. Perhaps you are the thorny soil, the the weedy soil, and the seed is sprouted and grows, but it's choked out by everything else in life. You have too many concerns to be worried about religion or God. You have too many things going on in life to really hear what it is that God wants to bring to your, your life, His claim on your life. You have too many concerns. Maybe you're the good soil, and something's going to grow in you that's going to be so powerful and so contagious, you're going to take it and multiply it as you share it in the lives of others and with your family and friends, as you live it. And it'll produce 30, 60, 100 times the one. And the harvest will be rich and full. Maybe that's what we're talking about. I don't know which soil type you are. My job is to spread the seed. I get to cast about a message and hope that it falls on fertile grounds. I hope that as you're listening, you hear something about God's valuation of you, about your story. I am created being. I am an animal, but not an animal among animals. I am an animal who has been made corporeally out of flesh, but in the image of a living God after his likeness. I have fallen into a rebellion, but I'm so loved by this God who created me that I have been saved from myself and invited, in fact, into harmony with him and with one another and into eternal life in his presence because of his gift, his love, his self-sacrificing nature. I've been called to be self-sacrificing in the image of the God who loved me and died for me. I've been called to serve others as he served me. Do you see how the story of God is mirrored in our story? the story of humanity? What kind of soil are you? Do you see yourself in that story? How about Revelation? Revelation 3. Now, we do a lot with this as a church. Revelation's a big book for us, and our forefathers studied it very carefully and particularly with an eye to the end of time. I don't, I'm not an expert on Revelation. I'm really... Um, working up my courage to tackle the book. It is, it is a monster, to say the very least, in my view. Some of you have tackled it. You're not intimidated. God bless you. You're reading it. You're getting all sorts of things out of it. It's great. For, good for you. And pray for me, because it's a monster. It's a Wow, I just don't know what to do with Revelation sometimes. I just don't know what to do with it. Well, 
We have these seven churches, right? We have a vision that's being given John, and on the one hand, he sees seven stars. There are seven angels of the seven churches, which are really messengers for the churches, and then the churches themselves. And seven, we know, is a number of completion or perfection. So we could probably do something with that. Our forefathers understood these to be prophetic time periods, so each of the churches in turn reflects a different era in Christian history. And if you put a template of Christian history over the description of each of the seven churches, there's a certain logic to that. There's a certain fit for that. I tend to see uh, all qualities in the present church. As I read the seven churches, I see churches that fit in today's world all of those qualities and characteristics. But the one that we usually prophetically apply to ourselves, or if not to ourselves as Seventh-day Adventists, to Christendom or the world as a whole at the end of time, is which one? Laodicea. When we say the word Laodicea, what do we think of? Do we think of prosperity? Maybe. Do we think of a thriving city? Probably not. Do we think of a place where uh, everybody is actually doing pretty well economically? No. Do we think of a place that's functional from a civic point of view? No. Do we think of a thriving port of trade, an important stop, the major trade routes of the Turkish, what is now Asia, what was then Asia Minor, Turkish peninsula there, or land there? No, probably not. What we think of when we think of the word Laodicea is a lukewarm group of people that God wants to spit out of his mouth. Is that your story? Is that our story? It is in some ways, isn't it? Is your heart so filled with gratitude and grace and a passion for the way in which God has acted in your life, that you are the seed planted in good soil that bears 30, 60, 100 times? Is that you? Because if you're that person, you are not Laodicea. Laodicea. I love Laodicea. See, I, I have a friend, he's right here, Peter, when we drink coffee together, he wants it so hot that my teeth would fall out if I drank what he, he's just... I don't know how he does it. I think doctors need to study Peter and find out what allows the roof of his mouth to stay there when he drinks a beverage or drinks soup. I, I don't know anybody... Of all my friends, I don't know anybody who has his heat tolerance. He actually likes it when the cup scorches his hand when he gets it. That, that's Peter. Me, I am a lukewarm kind of guy. I would like that not too hot is the way I order. Not too hot. Unless it's really, really cold out and I know I'm not going to be able to drink it for a couple of minutes. Because by the time I get to drinking it, it will be not too hot. So I love Laodicea. Not hot, not cold, it's just right. It's like the bed in Goldilocks' story, right? This one's just right. Not too hot, not too cold. This isn't what God thinks. 
God says, you know, I can do something with you. There's a point of judgment if you're completely cold. If there's nothing in you, if you're dead, I can do something about that. Maybe I can bring you to life. Maybe there's judgment. Maybe there's something else. If you're really alive and on fire, I can do something with that. But when you're just there, we sing the song, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. What's the opposite of that? It's not, oh, how I hate Jesus. There's passion on that side of the coin, isn't it? It's, I never think about Jesus. I don't care about Jesus. Who cares about Jesus? That's the opposite. Lukewarm. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Apathy. Calvin Miller says it really eloquently. I will slaughter this, so forgive me. He says, like silent chessmen on a board, love and hate stand silently together. Only the color of the squares is different. Pretty good, huh? What's your story? What's our story? Are we apathetic? Do we see ourselves in Laodicea? Or are we hot or cold? Do we love? Or are we ambivalent? Are we aware of all of the potential for good God has placed in us in creation, all the ways in which we were meant to be like Him? Or do we live our lives like animals, <coughs> denying every structure that could give our lives form and meaning? What's our story? The psalmist says, let's turn there again, Psalm 8. The psalmist says, Lord, your name is majesty on earth. You've set your glory even above the heavens. We know it. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the engine vendor. Do you catch the irony of that phrase? It took me a while. But Jesus, God, in weakness, has, has found strength. You see, children and infants are defenseless. But in their voices of praise, the enemy is, is defeated. The enemy, the avenger, is defeated with the voices of infants. Now, infants don't sing praise. They cry. And young children might sing praises or might just sing made-up songs all day long. I don't know. 
been a while. But there's something so powerful about that that our God is so great that He can take the voices of children, the songs of children, and in those songs and in that praise defeat the enemy. The heavens are the work of His fingers. And then the psalmist says, almost rhetorically, what are mere mortals that you are even mindful of them? What's our story, Lord? Who are we? Human beings that you even care for them. We are specks of dust in your cosmic universe. And then he says what the truth is. That the truth is you've made us only a little lower than yourself and crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over everything you've created. O Lord, how great your name is in the earth. That's your story. That's our story. That's the human story. Anything else you hear is a lie. And I say that categorically because of the authority of the Word of God. I say that categorically because of the world in which we live and the wonder that is within each of us. I say that categorically because the human story is meant to be one of dignity and grace and fulfillment. It is meant to be one of husbanding our planet, loving our children to maturity, and caring for one another as brothers and sisters, children of God, fellow creatures made in God's image after His likeness with many of His powers. That's who you are. And you are in rebellion against God. Paul is right. I don't do what I want to do and that which I don't want to do plagues me and I continually do it. Without grace and without the strength of God, we find ourselves caught up in all kinds of pits. It's so easy for this image of God created in us to be destroyed by the one who wants to destroy it. So easy for lives to invade our lies to invade our lives, to destroy, to marginalize, to reduce our capacities. That's part of the story too. But our story is the story of a created people redeemed by grace called to better things. Called to better things. You know what Jesus says? He says, I've given good works for you to do from the foundation of the world. There are things I've established that are good and right for you from the foundation of the world. That's what our God says. And he says this too. He says, I've begun a good work in you, and if I've begun it, I will bring it to what? 
completion, fruition. I will, I will finish it in you. That's your story. That's your story, folks, and I'm sticking to it.